This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox, and I am so excited about this show lined up for you today. So the frontman of the new Pornographers will talk about the themes on the band's new album. Ultimately, it's just about the uh, the anxiety of living in a... You know, in America right now. Then we'll hear about the music and stories of exonerees. We'll hear how bands like Pearl Jam and Metallica got one man out of his wrongful imprisonment. They're like, hey, you know, these kids were basically railroaded and persecuted because of our music. We'll hear about a man who's in a band entirely made up of those who've been wrongfully imprisoned. And we used the band to kind of spread the word to people who don't know about exonerations. And we'll hear about a new Broadway musical directed by the same guy who directed the hit show Hamilton. This new show is called The Wrong Man. It's a guy who's in Reno, and he's sort of a loner, and he ends up getting framed for a murder. But first, we're kicking off a new series called Day Job. It's about musicians who work day jobs to get by. Alda Agustiano works at Nana's Green Tea in Seattle as a line cook during the day, but you can find her on stage beatboxing and beat making as Chong the Nomad. For Chong the Nomad, working a day job is a place for her to have financial freedom to pursue music, but it's also a creative space to make that music. Rachel Stevens has her story. I think if you were to like watch me at my day job, you would laugh because <laughs> I'm always. I'm always kind of like doing some sort of weird dance. (laughs) I have one headphone in, someone else is blasting music, and I'm constantly moving. When I'm at work, the thing that kind of gets me by is like listening to music and matching my movements and like dancing my way through work, essentially. This is how Alda goes through life. She finds beats and sounds in her everyday life, in everyday places. I am Alda Agustiano. I go by Chong the Nomad on stage. I am a DJ, producer, musician, songwriter, singer, and I am also a line cook. Alda is a line cook at Nana's Green Tea, which serves a lot more than tea. She chops and boils and sears and constructs Japanese delicacies for lunch, dinner, and dessert. For Alda, creativity can strike at any moment, so she keeps on her toes at work. Uh, While I'm working, I feel like I'm constantly coming up with new ideas, so I would excuse myself. Hopefully it wouldn't be during a rush, but if it's during a rush, I keep it in my head until I can excuse myself, go inside the freezer or walk-in fridge and sound like an idiot and sing hum beatbox into my phone and i think i have around 200 250 recordings i asked her to share some of these god hello can you feel my power that was a demo I made for Paris Alexa. I started recording myself because I found myself too many times throughout college, throughout Cornish. I would always forget an idea and then I got sick of it. So at the time I would excuse myself in class to sing out ideas on my phone and it's kind of stuck with me. I think it's been my 
such a little breakthrough, but it's such a big breakthrough. It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten is just write down every idea you have, any idea that comes to you, even if at the time you think it's no good, just put it into existence as fast as possible. Alda has been conjuring music into existence since she was a middle schooler. By 16, Alda was fully dedicated to her new love, making music. She took to mixing songs with a made-for-Mac audio program known as Fruity Loops. She took bits and pieces from her favorite anime-style cartoon called Avatar The Last Airbender. Then she took those clips and put them into her own compositions. The first thing I made, I thought it was the stupidest thing I've ever made. It was one of the toddlers on the show saying, Be the leaf! So I made like a... Be the leaf! So I posted that. (laughs) And... I woke up to it having around 17,000 plays and 3,000 notes. That's never happened to me before. I was just just 16 and kind of just in disbelief of it all. And I kept doing it. And it was crack. (laughs) And I got a bunch of people liking my music. And it was super fun because I think that was when I realized that this was a possibility. I could do this. A possibility, but still a challenge. I showed my parents this song I made using a very good sound library, and they wouldn't stop looking at me. And after it finished, my mom said, you have a gift. I've never heard anything like that come out of her mouth ever before. All I hear is disappointment. (laughs) So it was like a real, it's, it's one of the most vivid memories I have in my mind because that's when I knew like I had to keep going. When I asked her about the validation from her mother and not the 17,000 likes, her response was, Dude, sometimes validation's gotta come from the person that birthed you. (laughs) Her parents knew she had a talent, but making this her career, it was a little bit of a harder sell. I was always making beats before then, but it was there. I I knew that I, I had to keep going. My parents weren't really about me having music as my full-time career. They were definitely supportive of my passions, but they wanted something more realistic of me. They wanted something that would ensure the safety of my future. So they would tell me, maybe you could have a minor in music, maybe get an internship at a studio or something like that. (laughs) I wasn't about it. I wanted to go all in. I'm a pinball machine. You're an ice cream sundae. So, she went all in. She applied to Cornish College of Arts for soundtrack composing. The films that inspired Alda, the cartoons she obsessed over, that's what she wanted to make. And her parents were with her the entire time. I always tell people, like, my dad taught me how to listen, my mom taught me how to sing. Listening. Normally at a day at work, I would be listening to music. I'd have one earbud in, and I just need to be listening to something. Um, music, podcasts. And singing. <clears throat> uh, what am I working on? This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's the weirdest time of, like, actually, okay. Hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
What comes through in Alda sings and beatboxes is bravery. You see that it's been brewing in this small, seemingly shy person this whole time. And when she sings on stage in front of thousands of people, it's powerful. Which is why mega bands like Death Cab for Cutie team up with her. She collaborated with them on this song. When we drive, when we drive. And she opened up for Death Cab for Cutie during one of their shows this year. But yeah, it's just that feeling on stage is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. But it's also the one thing that I'm... It's my own like personal mountain right now going into the music industry is that I do get mad anxiety. <clears throat> uh, excuse me mad anxiety before a set that like I puked before my Capital Block Hot Party set yeah I just and then went on stage and The Stranger wrote about it (laughs) that night (laughs) but that story in The Stranger was not about bombing or being nervous the title of that article read meet a future Seattle superstar so you know at the end of the day nerves are just the demons talking inside of your brain and just like when I go on stage and like express myself the way I truly want to like how you dance in your bedroom and you just share that to a bunch of people the most vulnerable part of you um, I think that's special and it's worth it every time it's worth anxiety Alda wants to perform more because she wants her music to reach more people you want your music to reach millions you want your message to spread to millions but what but at the end of the day for me I just want people to dance I want people to let go, and you don't get a lot of chances in life to um, feel that way. So if I can get that feeling from as many people as I can, I'm good. (laughs) That's the feeling she wants. Seeing the energy she feels in her music and the dance moves of her audience, that's it. And her first audience? I show my music to my friends every day at work. My friends at work are the ones that kind of just know my deepest darkest fears and secrets and i guess that's why i show them my music and her deepest darkest fear is losing the music like just something crazy happening to me and all of a sudden the chances the development I've made, the progress I've made, all of that just goes away. I think that's what I'm scared about the most. It's just, I'm at a place in my life where I feel like I can start running, but I'm scared that I'm gonna trip and fall. (laughs) I think that's my biggest fear right now. I don't want to f*** things up. (laughs) Everything with music not work out, and then having that become my main source of income forever and being stuck in a pattern of chasing this wild dream. But, but like, it's nice to have a fallback and I'm very grateful 
for the opportunities that my day job has given me. I mean, I, I can live in an apartment. <laughs> I got my own place. Her own place in Seattle. In Seattle, exactly. But I want to make music my life, and I will do anything I can. Anything she can means working hard at Nana's Green Tea and working hard at her music to make it all happen on stage. I am dancing all the time, constantly. It's it's fun, but it's also kind of like my way of getting all that <laughs> anxiety out and joy. There's just so much joy when I like get to play and have the chance to share my music. There's a lot of joy and liberation that comes with that. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um I guess like what what you see when I work my day job is a little similar to the Chong Nomad, Nomad you see on stage. Alden moves through life to the tempo of the songs playing in her head and playing in her chest, dancing from the prep line to the main stage. Alda recently worked with Singapore Airlines to create a music track. This track was composed of all noises that she could make inside the plane. This means buckling seatbelts, pouring champagne, pulling out trays. She put these sounds together to make a track called Nonstop. This song that you can hear and find online promotes Singapore Airlines' first direct flight from Seattle to Singapore. Since recording this episode of Day Job, Alda has actually given her notice at Nana's Green Tea. She's making it work with creating her music full-time. This episode was created by Bree Ripley, Ryan Sparks, and myself, Rachel Stevens, for KEXP's Sound and Vision. The new pornographers are out with their eighth studio album. It's called In the Morse Code of the Brake Lights. And in the Morse Code of the Brake Lights, repeating its stuttering are the words. This eight-member band featuring vocals from Nico Case is led by singer-songwriter Carl Newman. He sums up the album this way. Ultimately, it's just about the uh, the anxiety of living in a you know in America right now, the anxiety of living in the world right now, or trying to trying trying to strive, trying to be happy, trying to work to make it a better place. New pornographers started off as a Vancouver, BC-based band. But as the years have gone on, some members, including Newman, have moved to the U.S. And U.S. politics have made a huge impact on the band's latest album. 
America is a metaphor in the opening track, You'll Need a Backseat Driver. It's sort of a love song about two people in this out-of-control vehicle, which is uh, the world and, you know, America in the present. I think that there's just a lot of, uh, yeah, just trying to paint a uh, paint a picture of people trying to, like, uh, maintain sanity and, and love and support each other in a, in a situation when um, things are quite ugly. Many songs are about the state of the country or world masked in a story of travel. You hear it again in the song Higher Beams. It's set in a train station. At the station line, with all the bags to unpack, all the plans for the future to protect, because we've come to expect the trains But as the song progresses, you realize it's really a song reflecting on society. I think the metaphor was, again, it comes back to where we are, just being filled with ang- anxiety and fear over, over the state of the world. Like, there's a line, like, when you can't afford to leave or when you can't afford to move. Like, when people are living together and they, they can't afford a damage deposit. So it's like, well, I guess we have to put up with each other because it's too expensive to get out of this. And, of course, that, that taps into just America, the comfort the comfort of America right now, or a majority of America is not happy, but a lot of people are just in their comfortable lives and they don't really want a, re- they want a revolution, but they don't really want a revolution. Newman says the song he thinks is the biggest reflection on American society right now is a song called Colossus of Rhodes. And Colossus of Rhodes was a massive statue of a god that used to stand in the Greek city of Rhodes. You know, the Colossus of Rhodes is one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was, I think it was the basis for the Statue of Liberty. It was a, a massive statue that, you know, now it's, it's gone. There's, there's no, it's just legend. There's, there's no record of it except that it once existed and I thought is that where is that where America is going you know this this once mighty unstoppable uh, wonder of the world that maybe in a hundred years will people will barely even remember it says the album also has its happier moments. There's a lot of back and forth, uh, like not in songs where you f- feel like it feels like everything is falling apart, but there's also there's also some hope in there. All I can really do is try and, you know, put something out there that I think reflects honestly of how I feel, even, even if there, again, even if there is no clear narrative you know, I just, I hope, I hope some of it comes out. I hope someone can understand it. 
That was Carl Newman of The New Pornographers. You can take a listen to the new album and see if you can understand it. It's called In the Morse Code of the Brake Lights. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. We're going to spend the next 30 minutes of the show focusing on stories of those who have been wrongfully incarcerated and the music that got them through prison and life after they were released. We'll hear how famous musicians got a group of men out of a life sentence for a crime they didn't commit. And we'll hear from a man who's now in a band made up entirely of exonerees, those who are found not guilty after spending time behind bars. But first, we'll hear about a new musical that hit Broadway this month. It's called The Wrong Man. The musical is led by the same director of the hit musical Hamilton. The Wrong Man tells a story of someone who was wrongfully incarcerated. The wrong man is singing this song, man, the wrong man. The music was written by pop songwriter Ross Golan. He joins us now to talk about the show. Hello. Hello. So this musical has been more than a decade in the making, and you started off with one song about a character, am I right? Yep. You started with one song about this guy who gets wrongfully convicted, and then you started writing more songs. And then you sang them in lofts and in living rooms across the country and around the world. So what first drew you to this idea to write about the wrong man? Well, I'm, I'm super into albums that concept albums that tell stories you know redheaded stranger or you know these these amazing sort of long form storytelling but i i also really like murder ballads whether it's tupac or it's johnny cash or it's eminem or merle haggard or whoever it is so i was always into that but one of the things i found compelling was that you have all this empathy for these protagonists in these murder ballads where the protagonist is the murderer. I thought it'd be really interesting if there was just a song where the guy didn't do it. And uh, it was everyone's favorite song, and this was back in 2005. So over the few years, I started telling the story of how Duran, the protagonist, got in this place and started playing it in living rooms and... Next thing you know, someone said, can I host it? Can I host it? And whenever someone said, can I get a link to it or a CD or an MP3 or whatever it was, I always said no. So I'd rather drive or fly to you. So flew to Sydney and New York and Nashville, Chicago, never recorded it. And so the only way you could hear it is if I played it for them. And basically until, you know, when the album came out on Interscope, where we were able to actually spend the quality time it took to record it, and now the album is available for everyone to hear. It wasn't me who shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. I was at the same casino, but it was another guy. A Folsom prisoner admitted he committed the crime. Now I'm serving his time. Now my life's on the line. What's the general plot? So obviously someone gets wrongfully convicted. But if you were to say the plot in like three sentences, what would it be? Huh. Interesting question. It's a guy who's in Reno, and and he's sort of a loner, and he ends up getting framed for a murder by uh, the man in black who 
uh, is resentful because Duran ends up sleeping with his uh, his wife. <laughs> so, but it's not that you necessarily know anyone that's been wrongfully convicted. It wasn't like there was like a personal story that you know of someone and you kind of write this an in inspiration of that person or story. Not at the time, but I'm from Illinois, and Illinois is the most corrupt of the states. So we've I think we have five governors who who are or have been in in federal prison. Yeah, you guys do have a reputation. Oh yeah, and early 2000s. Governor Ryan, uh, a Republican governor, put a stay on all executions, which isn't particularly Republican, certainly not in the Midwest, um, because of the corruption that had been going on in the judicial system in Illinois. So I, I was really aware of that as a concept. But put yourself in your shoes in 2005, and there isn't serialized podcasts or Netflix. There isn't uh, a you know audiobooks that are really popular talking about people wrongfully incarcerated. So at the time, it was kind of a bizarre concept or an unusual concept for a song. And it's just sort of the way the world has happened to this. It's made it really relevant. And now I'm very close with certain people who've been wrongly incarcerated. And I've been working with the Innocence Project in, uh, in New York and have started working even with Youssef Salam from Central Park 5 on some music stuff. So uh, I'm more involved now, but partly because people listen to the album and they fell in love with it. And the Innocence Project is a it's an organization that helps people that were wrongfully convicted yeah. get out of prison. Yeah, I mean, statistically, there are around 100,000 people who are incarcerated in the U.S. for something they didn't do. You know, roughly people on death row, it's 52% white males, but it's seven times more likely that you'd be, uh, you know, up for capital punishment if you were a person of color. So it's a a problem that happens across all ethnicities, uh, but it's clearly targeted to certain people as a lot of the judicial system is. And, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about this just from... Again, it's so strange because it started with a song when I was broke and no one cared to listen to any of my music. And then all of a sudden, all you know, people start introducing the music to different people. And I, I just keep walking through doors and meeting some of these incredible humans. And some of them happen to be wrongfully incarcerated people. So outside of this project, The Wrong Man, that we're talking about today, you are also a pop songwriter. Uh, you worked with Maroon 5, Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez, and many, many more. So how is writing songs in this more kind of musical format, where you're telling an entire story through the length of an album or musical, how is this format of The Wrong uh, Man different than your other gig writing pop songs? <laughs> I met most of these people again because someone along the way heard the wrong man when I had nothing and they said, well, you know, do you want to start writing for other people? So this really has opened up a lot of doors for me. So I, I feel indebted to open a lot of doors for it. But the process is, you know, varies per song. And, you know, the wrong man I wrote alone. You know, all these other songs I wrote with the artists or with co-writers, I don't think I have any 100% songs that went number one at radio. But what's exciting with The Wrong Man is that this was uh, something that I was willing to spend weeks or months on per song because it mattered to me differently. I mean, every word in this is intentional. So if, if people were to recognize maybe some of the pop songs you've written, sure. what, what would those be? Oh, man. Uh, I wrote Dangerous Woman for Ariana Grande. Some 
it was funny because when I was writing it, uh, you know, I remember my wife walking in and 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 being like, "Why did you? Why are you writing a song called Dangerous Woman?" I was like, "I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, was, I think I was probably wearing my boxers, and it's probably very confusing." Um, and you know, I wrote uh, "My House for Florida," "Same Old Love for Selena," and. Compass for Lady Annabellum, all those were pretty big. I've been in LA for a long time, so I've, I've worked with a lot of them. So, going back to the wrong man, how did the director of Hamilton get involved in this project? I recorded the album live, so. What you hear on the album is me singing and playing guitar in the moment. I did it over four nights, and one of the people who came and saw that, of course, when you listen to the album, there's full production. It's a Dr. Dre rhythm section. Ricky Reed produced it, who did you know, Lizzo and Leon Bridges. Same thing with Nate the Mercero, the guitarist, and just the most incredible lineup. But they played to me playing live. So Kurt Deutsch, who's the producer of the show in New York, who runs musical theater for Warner Music Group, he was there and said, you know, you got to play this in New York. This is a story. So, you know, a couple weeks later, I flew out to New York, played it for some theaters. Um, I played it three times in two days or something like that. And then he calls me after the third time and I'm having some drinks with some friends. He said, by the way, nine in the morning, come to my office. Tommy Kale wants to hear it. Who directed Hamilton. Oh man, this is, this is nuts. I mean, I'm (laughs) drinking right now. This is going to be a tough morning. And I go and I show up to the, to the office. I played one song and he just kept saying, play the next one, next one. And I ended up playing the whole thing. And he said, well, come back in a month. And he brought Alex Lackamore, who, he got his honorary doctorate from Berkeley this year with Justin Timberlake and Missy Elliott because he did Greatest Showman, he did Hamilton, he did Dear Evan Hansen, In the Heights. He They bring Josh Henry, who's starring in, in the show in New York, who is three-time Tony-nominated actor, was, you know, to, that's how we started. So in, in an office, but that's how we started. And now, less than a year and a half later, we have a full production of you know, maybe 14 people on stage. And, you know, in the album, when I'm singing, I have my perspective of the world. So, you know, when you hear it, that'll make sense. And when you see the show, each of the characters have their own experience. So they have their own perspective. So the songs are different and there's more evolution to the story. So it's exciting. Yeah, because I actually saw you do kind of like this just a, again, a small intimate setting in Seattle where it was just you performing all the songs, you were singing them all, and it was kind of like you were the perspective of kind of each character a little bit. But I'm wondering how much are things going to change once it becomes a musical performance? Are there going to be more songs added? How does that process and collaboration work with you where it's like you're handing off, you know, this thing that you've been working on for more than 10 years, giving it to an amazing cast, an amazing director? And then do you get a, a, to be a part of this process to see how it goes once it hits Broadway? Yeah, I'm, I'm working with them daily. 
And we email back and forth. I wake up to emails from Tommy and Alex, and I go to bed sending my notes. So it's a, it's a really collaborative experience. Plus, I've become very close with the cast. You know, my job is being wrong a lot. So I walk into rooms, and I, I've said to people before, if you want to know what it's like to be a professional songwriter, walk into a room with people you don't know and sing at them. <laughs> and, then, and then ask what they think. You know, not only it's so vulnerable. So I'm used to being being wrong and and having to collaborate and trying to facilitate the best show for everyone who's involved in it. I want people to have fun. I want people to enjoy it. And the more I've gotten used to giving songs to other artists, I don't feel like this is a whole lot different. When people listen to either the album or see the show, what do you want people to take away from the story you're telling, from the music that you've made? Yeah, there are two parts to that. One is, this all happened word of mouth. Again, no one's making you listen to this. And a lot of people are busy, and a lot of people want to listen to whatever's in front of them, or whether it's a Pandora sort of mix or a playlist sort of mix. People are used to listening to short clips of things. But I hope people listen to this like they'd binge watch a movie or a TV show or an audiobook or a podcast, and they just would be listening to, you know, be willing to listen to the album from front to finish. And then if you like it, share it, because that's how it's always worked. I hope on some level people take away that art can be alive, and it's it can be owned by other people. It's not mine anymore. It's the listener who hears it and finds their own story from it. I don't really want to say what they should take away from it. I kind of want them to hear it and then tell me what they took away from it. But it's not necessarily like you're making a statement, uh, you know, about the the justice system or anything like that. It's pretty clear how I feel about it. But I don't think it's only about the politics of it. I, I think the politics is... It's something that we all need to work on. It, it, it's, it's clearly a, a messed up system. You know, the fact that Florida passed in a law that um, ex-felons can now vote, but then the governor said only if they pay back their fines is sort of one, you know, one step forward, four steps back kind of thing. But, you know, uh, Governor Newsom in California puts a stay on all executions because the only people they've executed in California in the last 10 years are people of color. So those both of those things show that we're progressing but it's slow. Um, so, yes, politically, I think that there are a lot of things people can do with getting involved with different innocence organizations. But I also want people to listen to the music and actually sing along because it's actually pretty fun. I've been speaking with Ross Golan, the songwriter behind the new Broadway musical called The Wrong Man. It opened in New York this month. The concept album is out on Interscope Records. Ross, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Emily. The wrong man is singing this song, man, the wrong man. The wrong man is singing this song, man, the wrong man. How many ways can you say it won't wait? How many times can you mention I see an extension? There are only 90 days to the execution date. Give me a stay. Don't make me a statistical anomaly. 
Now we're going to hear the story of how music was a tool to send three teenagers to prison and was also used as a tool to get them back out again. Jason Baldwin is part of what was called the West Memphis Three. There were three teenagers convicted of the murders of three boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in the mid-90s. Baldwin says the killings were so gruesome that rumors started swirling around that the murders were connected with cult activity. No one could figure out who committed the crime, and it was a horrible crime. And in the absence of knowledge and rumor and, and things like that, fill that gap. And so people were looking for who committed the crime. But in the absence of that, you know, scapegoats. Would do. Baldwin says he and his friend Damien Eccles and another teenager named Jesse Miss Kelly were those scapegoats. Baldwin and Eccles had been arrested before for vandalism and shoplifting, and Miss Kelly had a low IQ and was known for having a high temper. Baldwin says Miss Kelly didn't like his friend Eccles and gave a false confession and false information to police. They showed him, you know, all these pictures and, and you know, just told him basically, you know, what to say and gave him hints of what to say. And when he, whatever story he was making up, didn't say whatever it was they needed to get a warrant, they would have him change it. Once police had a warrant, they had arrested Baldwin and Eccles on what Baldwin says was his last day of 10th grade. We were at Damien's house and ordered pizza, rented movies, rented a, like rented a whole TV and VCR. Next thing you know, the police came and arrested, you know, Damien and I for, for murder, and I remember um, they took my mug shots and stuff. Uh, I remember they took my fingerprints, but they took my whole handprint. They took my whole footprint. They took me down to the hospital even that night, and um, the doctor drew blood and saliva and hair from everywhere, you know, and, and, and I remember thinking as horrible as it all was that whoever committed the crime had to have left some type of evidence for the police to compare my samples to. Baldwin says police didn't seem to use any of that physical evidence in the case and instead chase after the idea that the murder was connected to cult activity. You know, when the trial came about, it, there was no talk of any real evidence. It, it, the talk was that there was a lack of evidence and that lack of evidence was evidence of occultism and Satanism. And then they brought up uh, our music preferences and, and, and our literature preferences and all these things that, that attacked us personally to make people, in a sense, hate us so much that they could convict us for a crime we didn't commit without any evidence. And when the case went to court, Eccles' music taste was used against him. They had taken a journal of Damien's from, from when he had gotten locked up from running away with his girlfriend, Deanna, the summer before. And in it, he had written down some Metallica lyrics. And they used those lyrics to say, you know, because of these lyrics, you know, that Damien, basically what the prosecution said, you look into his eyes and he has no soul. This was the Metallica line the court referenced from the journal. During 
the trial, HBO started getting interested in the case, and HBO started filming what ended up being a documentary series called Paradise Lost, which was about the West Memphis Three case. It was scored by Metallica. They felt so heavily about it. They're like, hey, you know, these kids were basically railroaded and persecuted because of our music. And so if it can happen, you know, to one, you know, one of our fans or two of our fans or three of our fans, it could happen to any and all of our fans. And if it could happen to our fans, it can happen to anybody. Baldwin, Eccles and Miss Kelly were eventually found guilty of murder in 1994 and sent to prison. Meanwhile, the HBO documentary series started rolling out in 1996 and rose awareness about the case. Baldwin says the documentary showed how broken the justice system is. And how it picks on the poor people and and people who can't defend themselves and people that society labels as as other and undeserving. And, And a lot of musicians and artists are people who have been broken by the system and are channeling those emotions and those feelings in the most productive ways that their souls can provide. The case started heating up again more than a decade later, and more musicians started getting on board to rally support for the West Memphis Three. In 2010, Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam and Natalie Maines of Dixie Chicks organized and headlined a benefit concert for the West Memphis Three in Little Rock, Arkansas. Then a year later, the West Memphis Three were exonerated and released from prison after the case made its way all the way to the Arkansas Supreme Court. Baldwin says he thinks he'd still be in prison today without support from the music community. I know Eddie Vedder and and Natalie Maines and, and and, and Henry Rollins, everything all these artists did was integral to us getting out and like making a recipe, you know, like making a cake or, or baking bread or something, you know, without one of the main ingredients, it doesn't come together. Once Baldwin and Eccles were released from prison, they actually flew out to Seattle to live with Eddie Vedder. Baldwin says he lived with Vetter and his family for a few months, and the Vetter family then went on to help Baldwin find his first apartment, help put him through community college, and take him to shows. When I was, lived in my apartment, you know, I'd still come over and hang out, and you know, because it was just right down the road, so it was easy, you know. And he'd be like, "I'm back in town, you know, let's go see a show," and and so he'd be like going to see uh, Van Halen and and Soundgarden, so we'd go see shows together and stuff, which was really surreal and cool. And Vetter, Natalie Maines of Dixie Chicks and Metallica are still involved in Baldwin's life and efforts to spread awareness and help those who've been wrongfully incarcerated. Baldwin has since started an organization called Proclaim Justice, which works on cases to try to free those who are alleged to be wrongfully prisoned. Maines, along with Sheila Nevins, who spearheaded the HBO documentary about this case, both sit on the organization's board. And Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam continues to use a portion of their concert ticket sales to give back to charities and organizations. That also includes helping fund investigations into some cases Proclaim Justice is working on. And the drummer and co-founder of Metallica helped raise his money for Proclaim Justice. And specifically um, on this past tour, he auctioned off meet and greets where you'd just auction and spend money to hang out with him and get a VIP treatment package at, at his show and meet backstage and, 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 you know, get photos with him and stuff. And then he takes that money and donates it to Proclaim Justice. And we use that for our cases. Baldwin says his work with Proclaim Justice is his way to give back and help those wrongfully incarcerated just like the music community did for him. This is how I pay it forward, and this is my life's mission, and 
I'm just very lucky that people noticed and cared enough to stand up and fight for us. Baldwin says Proclaimed Justice has freed two people from prison in the six and a half years the organization has been around and is currently working on a handful of other cases. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. I'm Emily Fox, and we've been exploring the stories of the music that helped people during and after their wrongful imprisonment. And now we hear from someone who's part of the Exoneree Band. It's a band made up entirely by those who were wrongfully incarcerated. We sing about the Innocent Project and we sing about, you know, our lives or how we've been affected by, you know, prison and how we've been affected by being free. Raymond Towler is the guitar player in the Exoneree Band. He was in prison for 29 years. That's until he got exonerated through DNA evidence with help of the Innocence Project. Like Proclaim Justice, the Innocence Project is a nonprofit that works on cases to free those who've been wrongly convicted. I've been telling about my innocence since day one. I was charged for a rape. It was two kids under the age of 12, which made it so unbelievable. It's kind of like the situation, uh, like driving while black. Uh, was back in the, in the 80s. I kind of was kind of out and about in the neighborhood that was primarily Caucasian. That's actually where I grew up, so I was kind of comfortable. This was in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was born and raised. But I guess, you know, I was kind of in the place where it was noted and said to me, you know, to my face that I wasn't wanted in this neighborhood. You know, so I was kind of accosted and thrown in jail for something that I didn't do. Towler says it was a reliance on eyewitness reports that sent him behind bars. And of course, there was a drawing, you know, and there was a, of a black man, even though it didn't, you know, I have like dark brown eyes. And the, the description that was given was a guy with light hazel eyes, a lighter skinned guy, and I had a beard. And they said the guy was shaved. It was a lot of, you know, mistakes made. But it's like the image of the guy with no access to a, you know, a real attorney or, you know, so I didn't have much fight in me as far as going up against the system. And a lot of the feelings were that the system was just happy with closing the case. Towler had access to a guitar in prison and would play when he could. And every 4th of July, he was able to rehearse and perform with a band with other convicts at the prison. And once he was released with help from the Innocence Project, he met members of his current exoneree band at a conference that the Innocence Project put on. When they had a lot of the exonerees come and they decided to let us have like a little talent show. So it turned out that the guys who are in the band now joined into this this little show. And we turned out to be like the house band for the other people who wanted to sing. And so we we were the the backup musicians. And we used the band 
to kind of spread the word to people who don't know about exonerations. I was taken by the laws of justice. Oh, yeah. Cast away as a stone. Left to rot in the dungeon. For the murder of a man I didn't know. Did a crime, you'll pay for that. Don't you know that it's a fact? A fact you know where well, your freedom is shame. And it's easier to, to kind of catch people's attention with music, you know, to kind of entertain and then, you know, kind of inform them also. And then, you know, have a little fun with it, too. You know, it doesn't have to be so emotionally draining, you know, because a lot of people hear these stories and they immediately you see a tear in their eye. Lady Justice lost this one. That was Raymond Towler of the Exoneree Band. Special thanks to KEXP's Skylar Locatelli for pitching this Exoneree music segment and finding and interviewing both Towler and Jason Baldwin. This is Sound and Vision. 47 Souls stopped by KEXP this week. The band fuses traditional Arabic dance music with electronic hip-hop. They call it Sham Step. KEXP Wo-Pop DJ Derek Mazzoni interviewed the band as part of their in-studio performance. Let's go back a little bit. How did the band form? Like, And why, why 47 Soul? Why that name? Uh, well, 47 Soul to us is... The year 47, when, when moving between our cities was still possible. Mm-hmm. So it's a freedom of movement symbol for us. They're talking about 1974, because in 1948, the Arab-Israeli war broke out and pitted Jews against Arabs. An estimated 700,000 Palestinian Arabs had to flee their homes that year. That war led to the founding of Israel. The members of 47 Seoul are the result of that Arab-Palestinian diaspora. My people move around. More people move around. My people move around before we all get moved around. We met because we've known about each other from different groups and we started to do a collective via the internet at the time, being in different cities between Palestine, Jordan and the States. And uh, yeah, we had this interest in this using the sound of um, celebration music from our region. Palestine, Syria, Jordan, uh, and, and having that done with other stuff. So that's why we formed, to, uh, to make this sound happen. Yeah. Seven Soul then moved to London about five years ago to make music together. Last year, they released an album called Balfron Promise. The Balfron Tower was a place that we moved into as artists looking for more affordable housing and that as children of refugees and displaced people coming into a new neighborhood that was already full of displaced people. <laughs> and 
So that experience, you know, brought up a lot of our own personal history. And it will always be the main topic that we discuss because that's our main shared experience. You just going to stay in London? Is that home? Uh, not necessarily. We are, we are in London for, for now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, we've, been, we've been traveling around quite a bit, so it's kind of lost the sense of where's the base. But yeah, we're, we're in London for okay. the moment. Yeah. But it's kind of, yeah. I just want to say one thing, it's kind of call a place home when you spend five years in that place and it's still hard to stay there, paperwork-wise. Yeah. So yeah. deep inside, I feel like London is home. But on paper, it's not it's really. Still, it's still complicated. Yep. I understand. Well, you know, we, we're, we're known as a people for, for looking for home. So <laughs> This is true. <laughs> so on, on that note, it's like I, I wanted to ask you one question because you guys played in New York. You're going to play in Seattle. You played in L.A. You, you play in cosmopolitan places. And But I'm curious because I know that in, quote, unquote, the red states is where you guys should be playing because you present an image of a band of a culture of a people that's needed to seen over there like in new york and seattle it's like we know you we love you but over there um it would be uh, refreshing for them to see a band like this instead of the idea that they have what an arab or an arabic band is about now that is funky um you know we had a band tin that got threats because they were playing and uh, winston's try to play in winston-salem but is this something you guys would be open to we're like you know Whoa. I lived in Nebraska for five years, so I'm ready to go back and play that music there. You know? Really? Okay. <laughs> okay. What made you live in Nebraska? Tell I went to that. school there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are fully multicultural experiences. You're a perfect band for this, this kind of exchange. I definitely exchange. agree with you. I definitely agree with you that, uh, you know, like uh, in some way, uh, the people who are on, the, on one side of the spectrum, uh, because they think that they are righteous, they refuse to speak to the other side of the spectrum and uh, the actual responsibility is to reach out and uh, even to reach out to your enemy you know mm-hmm. uh, it's that extreme but uh, because we know that people are manipulated and their emotions and their beliefs is being manipulated in order to think one way and to reject the other so we have to create a different or alternative platform of information and if music could be a tool for that then why not you know like uh, we come from the holy land the holy land been for centuries and ages a multicultural place a metropolitan and unfortunately colonialism came and divided us in order us in order to teach us how to live together after we've been living together for thousands of years you know, and I think this is the mission of this band as well, that we come to emphasize the culture that, unfortunately, colonialists try to enforce on us. And the people who are uh, controlled, uh, like the people of the colonialists, are also monopolized. Uh, and they don't know uh, the info, the right info that the colonializers, their leaders are implementing and, and, and enforcing, you know. So maybe the music could be. Well, it's not the tool, but it could be. Just We're, to add you know. to that, I think Wala, he dropped the, the right word, uh, the spectrum, you know, left and right. They're both extremes, mm-hmm. right? So I think our music is for everybody, yeah. given that we are from that 
Fertile Crescent, Middle Earth, Babylon, I, Holy I Land totally area agree. that produced a lot of the doctrines and corpuses that a lot of the world runs its, uh, you know, symbolic capital on. So, yeah, it's for everyone. That was the band 47 Souls speaking with KEXP Wopop DJ Derek Mazzoni. You can listen to this entire conversation and in-studio performance during KEXP's Wopop Tuesday at 7 p.m. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. No, you might be from Philly or Triple From the mountains or the sea. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. I don't care where you're from, where you're from. Maybe you got the keys to your city. This is Sound and Vision. KEXP had our fall fun drive last week. It was very successful. Thanks to you if you gave. If not, this is your reminder that KEXP is a publicly funded station. The majority of our funding comes from listeners. You make shows like Sound and Vision possible. If you like what you hear, please give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org sound. If $20 is too much... Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. I just checked Apple Podcasts, and it looks like we only have one review and 25 ratings. I would love to wake up tomorrow and have at least one more review and, let's say, three more ratings. And I want you to help make that happen. You can do that right now. Well, because last week was very busy on air helping raise money to keep us on the air, we weren't able to ask our listener question. But here's a question we asked back in April on this show. It is, what is your favorite song lyric and why? My name is Scout Phillips. I currently live in Arizona. And for me, the lyric that just perpetually sticks is from The Long Winters. And it's from their song, Nora. It says, but she never says I love you till I say I love you, like we're exchanging hostages. And you know, for me, it's just, it paints this image that's that experience of you know, both being vulnerable and putting the effort and maybe even like the hope, the wish that your love's reciprocated and knowing that maybe it's no longer what it once was, but you're still just kind of wanting it so much or so desperately that you're just willing to accept the return response, even if it is, you know, deteriorating into that hostage exchange feeling. But she So my name is Amy. I'm from New York, New York, and my favorite lyric is from Bjork's Bachelorette, um, the first line, I'm a fountain of blood in the shape of a girl, and I heard it when I was in a really dark place, and I just felt like there wasn't really anything to live for, and when I heard that line, it really like snapped me out of where I was because it was so beautiful and sort of strange and unique. And so it really means a lot to me now. Whenever I hear the song, I remember kind of having that moment of epiphany and being like, there was so much beauty in the world that I hadn't seen before and that I didn't even know that I was missing necessarily.
my name is Carolyn Spare, and uh, we currently live in Middletown, Maryland, which is a small town in central Maryland. Uh, but we used to live in Seattle. Uh, my husband and I uh, loved living in Seattle, and one of our favorite bands has been Block Party. We uh, enjoyed seeing them a couple times in concert when we were living in Seattle. And um, one of those concerts was actually when I was pregnant with our daughter. She was born in January 2010, and uh, shortly after she was born, she was found to have some fairly significant heart problems. And over time, the uh, doctors at Seattle Children's kind of found another thing and another thing, and they ultimately uh, sent us to a geneticist who diagnosed her with a rare genetic condition that has kind of turned our lives into something quite a bit different than we had anticipated. So um, we moved out to Maryland to live closer to family when she was two. And at the time I was pregnant with our son. And uh, I actually insisted on listening to Block Party when I was in labor with our son at the hospital, which was kind of fun. But um, anyhow, we gave our son the middle name of Brighton, which is after Block Party's song, Waiting for the 718. And um, to us, that song talks a lot about the past and and about second chances. Um, so it's got lyrics like, if I could do it again, I'd make more mistakes. I'd not be so scared of falling. If I could do it again, I'd climb more trees. If I could do it again, I'd make more mistakes. I'd not be so scared of falling. getting those second chances now. Our daughter is, has had some significant surgeries, but she's doing really well. And our son is healthy. He's, he just turned seven yesterday. And so uh, we're enjoying all these second chances that we're getting and all these moments that we're getting with our kids. That song reminds us to just give me moments, give me moments. And uh, let's drive to Brighton on the weekend is how it closes. And maybe we'll do that one day. Thanks to everyone for sharing their story. This week we are asking you, what is a song that reminds you of fall and why? Write us your answer at soundandvision at kexp.org and you might be included in next week's podcast. Again, the question, what is a song that reminds you of fall and why? Well, as we wrap up this podcast, I have some folks to thank today. Thanks to our contributors this show, Rachel Stevens, Bree Ripley, Ryan Sparks, Skylar Locatelli, Derek Mazzoni, and production assistance from Hans Anderson. Our theme music is by the Seattle-based band The True Loves, and I'm your host and executive producer, Emily Fox. Well, as we wrap up each and every podcast, we ask one of our guests, why does music matter? Today, we ask Carl Newman of the New Pornographers, why does music matter? For me, music has been so redemptive. Like even as a even as a child, and I heard a song I I loved. I I was I was so attracted to it. It was like a moth to a flame. And creatively, music 
feels like a, a way to like reach out of yourself. It's 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 a way to take something a solitary feeling and 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 make it into something and and you can you can present it to the world. And it's, you know, it's an amazing form of uh communication and it's just fun, you know. It's hard to put into words, but it's what I dedicated my life to. I think from a from a from a fairly young age, I I saw music and I thought this is this is what I absolutely love. For me, it, it it's always felt like something very very important, something something redemptive, like a life preserver you can cling to even if you don't think you can cling to anything else. And I think that's a pretty it's a pretty powerful thing. That was Sound and Vision. Thanks so much for listening. 